the Jewish views on the dramatic rescue off the coast of Dover. A group of Hasidic teenagers became stranded. And we speak to one of their rescuers. The Eitzer Network, a new organization designed to help Jewish women share knowledge and experience. And the Proms at St. Jude's, the music and arts festival that features some of Northwest London's finest. But first, with a look at the Jewish news from the week, I'm Jason Rosam. A group of 34 strictly orthodox teenagers from Stamford Hill were all successfully rescued after becoming trapped by the tide off the coast of Dover. The teenagers and their two guardians were on a trip organised by the Ahavas Yisrael Community Centre when the incident happened. They used their mobile phones as lights to attract the attention of the rescue crew involving Dover RNLI, Coast Guards and the community group Shomrim. Friends and families of those involved have already raised £5,000 for their rescuers and have promised more is to come. The Palestinian ambassador to London has condemned state TV showing children dressed as suicide bombers and cartoon characters which encourage Palestinian children to hate Jews. Speaking during an LBC radio debate, Manuel Hassassian also said that boycotts of Israel were not advocated only a boycott of goods that come from illegal settlements. He went on to say that he recognised the state of Israel and that he didn't think Israel should deal with Hamas. The technology giant Google has removed a browser extension that allowed neo-Nazis to identify Jews. The third-party application identified potential victims of online anti-Semitic abuse by using algorithms and marked their names with three brackets either side. At the time of removal, it had almost 2,500 users and a rating of five stars. The Oscar-winning playwright Sir Peter Schaffer has died. He was 90. Sir Peter was known for his works Amadeus, Equus and The Royal Hunt of the Sun. Harry Potter star Daniel Radcliffe, who played the lead in the West End version of Equus, paid tribute, calling him one of the UK's greatest playwrights. And finally, Israeli archaeologists have discovered silver coins believed to be 2,100 years old. The relics date back to the Hasmonean period, 126 BCE. The shekels and half shekels bear the images of the King Antiochus VII and his brother Demetrius II. That's the news. Now here's Andrew Sherwood with a look at the sports. Thanks, Jason. Jewish boxing greats, both past and present, including Gary Jacobs, Dimitri Salita, Yuri Fulman and Zachary Rollman, have all been paying their tributes to the late Muhammad Ali. Inside the ring, Tony Milch warmed up for his first title fight next month by winning his 10th consecutive win to maintain his unbeaten record, beating Lewis Van Poached on points at York Hall. Elsewhere, the final game of the Jewish football season last weekend saw Redbridge B beat North London Raiders Masters 1-0, to win the MGBSFL Masters Invitational Trophy. And finally, there was some Israeli success at this year's French Open after Yishai Oliel won the Junior Boys Doubles event at Roland Garros. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest sports, including reading the thoughts of the boxers on Muhammad Ali and watch Tony Milch's fights at the Jewish News website on www.jewishnews.co.uk. 
Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off as we always do with a look through your edition of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me is the news editor Justin Cohen and features editor Fran Wolfish. Welcome to you both. Now, it's normally at this stage that I would say that let's start off with the front page. But I'm sure that many of you listening to this by now would have heard the news that there has been another terrorist attack in Israel. And unfortunately, we did get a press before we could get anything in the paper for this week. So slightly away from the paper, we're going to start with that, aren't we, Justin? Yes. Uh, well, as, as I think all our listeners will know by now, uh, Israel has suffered its worst terrorist attack in quite a while. A, a shooting at the Sorona market in the centre of Tel Aviv late on Wednesday night as people were enjoying uh, meals and going to bars. It's a really cool part of town, a new area that is, uh, I think, really a microcosm of the vibrancy of the city that it inhabits. And it was shattered by a shooting attack by two cousins from the West Bank and four people have lost their lives. We now know a bit more about those victims. It includes a young mother, a professor at Ben Gurion University whose tributes have been flowing in for, for him from his colleagues at Ben Gurion. And you know, it really, it's just a reminder that unfortunately terrorism is a daily factor for Israelis. We've seen an upturn in violence of stabbing attacks on the streets for several months now. But this really is a reminder that, that mass casualty incidents have become all too familiar for Israelis. The new defence minister, Avigdor Liebman, is threatening uh, severe action to clamp down. Hamas has celebrated these attacks and threatened more over the Ramadan holidays. Many people will be wondering now whether this is the start of yet another summer of blood loss. Please God, it won't be, I'm sure. But I know that, Fran, that you raised an interesting point before we actually started recording this edition where you were saying that you were concerned about the lack of press coverage. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? There are many, many examples, I'm sure, that we can all think of where the media has been saturated to infinity with news about Israel, coverage of things going on, terrorism, Gaza attacks, Hamas. And yet there I was receiving all these reports via social media, which actually does a very impressive, very good job of bringing us the news quickly these days. And I had a quick look through all the channels. We've got quite a substantial package of news channels at home. And I just couldn't find anything on any news channel about what was going on in Israel. And I found that really disappointing, actually. The only channel that was actually carrying anything was Al Jazeera. Well, I guess like if one has to balance this out in the interest of fairness, that potentially there's probably two reasons why it doesn't feature so heavily in the news here. I would say that the concept of a terror attack in Israel, unfortunately, as we've already suggested, is becoming more and more a daily occurrence. And if we were to report on every single attack, then our media would be saturated by that particular topic, which don't get me wrong, it needs highlighting, it needs bringing into the forefront of people's minds to know that that's what's happening. But at the same time, would they report on a terrorist attack on us. I don't think I can accept what you're you're saying, Phil. I don't think there's any kind of justification for the lack of coverage we've seen on this. If you imagine an attack like this happening on another Western nation, be it Britain, France, America, where people who are enjoying a, a late evening meal are gunned down uh, in this way, I think it would receive a whole lot more coverage. I, I think the other thing 
that suggests a certain slant, a certain bias, is the way in which certain news agencies reported this. Some of the headlines that put the word terrorist in inverted commas, that talks about apparent attacks or apparent terror attacks, this suggests a whole different level of reporting compared to any other country if they had suffered a similar attack. I also find it really sad to think that perhaps we're we're getting a little bit desensitized by such things, even if it is a regular occurrence. And it's a terrible thing that it is such a regular occurrence. We should never be desensitized to terror attacks. The only way to fight terrorism, surely, is to be talking about it, showing the world what's happening. And this is happening every day in Israel. So it needs to be shown. Okay, well, hopefully we'll do our best here at the Jewish Views and also obviously the Jewish News as well to bring you all the latest on that. Let us now take a look at what is inside the paper this week on the front page. Mr. Trump makes your front page. Why? Well, apart from the fact that his hair is incredible, Phil, and we've gone for a very nice flattering photo of his hair standing to attention. I can't really talk about that, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I really do hope, you know, if he does go further, he really needs to get a new hairstylist. But aside from that, Trump is making the headlines again because he is due to visit the UK. And what a welcome he's going to receive when he gets here because the Jewish community for all its divisions and uh, differing opinions, has come together, apparently, to unite against Donald Trump in their opinion of him, a lot of them slating him for his divisive comments. It's a cross-communal reaction, really, and it's quite incredible that such a man can bring the community together in this way. Senior reform rabbi Laura Jana Klausner has criticised him for his naked appeals to bigotry. The Board of Deputies has gone in there as well, called his comments divisive and troubling. We've even got the Liberal Judaism chief exec, Rabbi Danny Rich, saying that they're also concerned about the things he's said and that his rhetoric is just part of a growing intolerance and inability to discuss things rationally. So Trump really does come across as a very divisive character. But what I would say is, you know, this man could potentially be the next president. So, you know, for all the sort of reasons that we have perhaps for disliking the things he's said, it may be a little bit premature. Who knows? Well, I'm guessing that whatever the welcome he receives when he does uh, get to the UK from the Jewish community, I'm sure that we'll bring you all the latest when it does happen. Let's have a look inside the paper now. Mark Regev, the Israeli ambassador, has finally spoken to the Jewish press and what's he said? Yes, uh, Mark's now been in place for about two months and we had the opportunity this week uh, to sit down with him for a few Uh, for an off-the-record conversation and then a few on-the-record questions. And that included, uh, and I think that was really the focus, on the Balfour Declaration, the centenary celebrations that are coming up late next year. I I think, you know, increasingly, this is going to become a major focus of UK-Israel relations. It's a real focal point, a way to celebrate the, the positive contacts, whether it be in tech, in science, on the economy, between those two Western nations. And Mark Regev was talking about how the British and the Israeli governments are actually working together on plans for a joint public celebration for the Balfour Declaration centenary. Also had had an opportunity to talk about 
other hot topics, including Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party. And he said that, you know, he's he feels that Jeremy Corbyn, because of his his background, his family background, his family marched uh, against the fascists in Cable Street. And he he speaks very proudly of that. And, and, And Mark Regev was talking about how he's looking forward to sitting down with Jeremy Corbyn and having a serious conversation. So uh, Mark Regev isn't known to be shy in coming forward in his previous role as spokesman for Benjamin Netanyahu. And I think on this topic also, he's being quite forthright, quite direct. And it'll be interesting to see what, what comes out of any possible relationship that they get going. Certainly will. Well, I think we've got time to shoehorn one more in. A right royal Shabbat. What's that about? So, yeah, about six weeks ago, Phil, uh, Jewish News put out a call to all synagogue movements, urging them to put on special commemorations, special celebrations to mark the Queen's 90th birthday. This weekend, of course, is the end of those national celebrations. There's going to be a service of Thanksgiving attended by Jewish leaders alongside other faith community leaders, but also at synagogues across the community. There are going to be special kiddishes, sermons and prayers being put forward. I think one of those that really stands out for me is a commemoration that's going to be taking place at the West London Synagogue, where they're inviting Muslim locals uh, to join uh, the Jewish congregation for a special iftar celebration to mark the end of the fasting for Ramadan. And that's also going to have a royal theme with, I think, blue, white and red cakes and other, uh, other special uh, events. Well, hopefully, I think that at least we can acknowledge that Even if certain communities don't mark the occasion, we are always the one religion that seems to make an effort to give thanks for Her Majesty the Queen and all the royal family. So with that in mind, maybe we're marking it, even if we don't do anything that different. That's all we've got time for for the paper review for this week. Thank you both very much indeed. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, as you heard a little earlier on in the news with Jason, one of the biggest news stories to come out of this week was that a group of 34 strictly orthodox teenagers from Stamford Hill were all successfully rescued after becoming trapped by the tide off the coast of Dover. The teenagers and their two guardians were on a trip organised by the Ahavas Yisrael Community Centre when the incident happened. Amongst their rescuing team was Mark Finnes, the coxswain at Dover RNLI. I've been speaking to Mark to find out about what happened. I started by asking him to tell us about the moment the distress call came in. Well, I was at home and uh, my pager went off, shortly followed by a phone call from my uh, launching authority informing me that we had 36 people cut off by the tide between St. Margaret's Bay and Dover Harbour. That's the first news I had of it. I then went down to the station organised a crew and we got underway. By the time we got on scene, the the incident was only, I would say, about a mile, if that, outside the harbour. So we didn't have too far to run, to be honest. We was probably on scene in a matter of eight minutes, easily. When we got on scene, the Coast Guard helicopter and the two flank station inshore lifeboats were already there. Fortunately, the lads that were ashore were signalling the two inshore lifeboats with the screens from their phone. It was, it was dark by now, which was a very good idea, very good idea. They were picked up, visualised straight away. Plus, you know, we had the thermal imagery camera on the helicopter. So all the parties were located very quickly. 
And according to all reports, it would suggest that these guys are, well, frankly, they're very lucky to be alive and give or take one hour or so, or maybe even a couple of hours, it could have been a very different story. Is that couple true? Of, yeah, yeah. In a couple of hours, the water level in that area does go right to the base of the cliffs. They would have been very lucky to find one or two, perhaps one or two patches of beach which are still exposed at a very high water. And I'm guessing that it doesn't always end well. I'm guessing that there is obviously something in the way of a survival rate and it doesn't necessarily always mean 100%, does it? I haven't experienced that personally. We've always managed to uh, pluck the people to safety, but I, I, I would imagine going around the coast, yes, I would imagine some people have perished okay. in such circumstances. All right, so maybe you'd be as so kind as to, to tell us what are the warnings around there? I'm guessing that it's not just an open area that people are just allowed to wander freely and then they keep getting stuck. Surely there must be signage around there no. and there must be things that say is. this is a dangerous is. area, don't go there. So what would they have walked past and not really taken into account in order to get to where they were? I mean, I've been informed they would have walked past a number of times deterring them from doing what they did. You know, people do still disregard these signs, but they get away with it. These lads on Monday night, they were very fortunate to get away with it. Had we not turned up, I fear the situation could have got a whole lot worse. What would you suggest then that anyone who maybe is going to a coastal resort or a coastal location, have you got any words of wisdom that you could share with them that maybe that they should be following yeah. and, and taking on board, if you forgive yeah, the horrible pun there, absolutely. taking on board um, that they should know, be doing? Yeah, yeah. Please take heed of all the signage that's around. You know, it's there for your benefit. It's not put there just for the hell of it. You know, it's, it's put there for your safety. I can remember one of the signs down there is warning of cliff falls. There's been a number of big cliff falls in that area of recent times just to mention but one possible tragedy mark the other thing as well that i want to highlight is that i believe that this is however an unfortunate instant it is and it's thank goodness it had mm -hmm. a great outcome i believe that it's quite timely because aren't rnli doing something around now anyway to raise awareness of what people should be doing and the work that you guys do yeah yeah we are it's called respect the water it's a campaign we're running this year each year, around the British and Irish waters, there's some 190 people that die. The RNLI's aim is to half that by 2024. Half of those who die at the coast never actually intend to get wet in the first place. What, what we're aiming to do is get people to think for themselves, think, think what they're about to do through... Is it safe? Some of the stuff that people are uh, slipping up on is uh, around half the people who drown slip, trip or fall into the water. They don't expect to get wet. We had a slip on that incident on Monday night. We thought we had a broken ankle at one point. Turned out to be a sprained ankle and the lad walked off at the end of the night with the rest of his colleagues. You know, I mean, that's the sort of thing we're, we're trying to prevent you know, they, they was rock, walking around on slippery rocks in the dark. It's just asking for trouble, really. They don't respect the water. The temperature of the water, the average temperature of the water 
around this country is throughout the year is around about 12 degrees C. It can steal the air from your lungs. What happens is you suddenly find yourself in that temperature of water. Your natural instinct is to take a sharp intake of breath. Well, that's all well and good as long as you don't take a sharp intake of water as well, which all too often happens. So those are the problems associated with cold water shock. You know, we've also got around the coast, we've got a number of beaches, a large number of which are now patrolled by lifeguards. I think we should take this moment now, Mark, to actually talk about the, the, the way that RNLI actually works, because how are you funded? My understanding is that the, the lads you rescued during the week have yeah. now raised about £5,000 plus for RNLI and everyone else who was involved in the rescue mission. Yeah. So I'm guessing you do rely on donations some of the time. We do. Yeah, we do. We don't take any money from the government. It's all funded purely on voluntary donations. I hasten to add, we are very grateful for that donation. Absolutely. Well, I, I suppose that one would say that this, it goes to show that, that that is their gratitude, if that's the right way of putting it. I know that they obviously, you don't do financial reward, but it's perhaps the only way that they can say thank no. you. And I suppose that as well that it just, it highlights just how crucial the service that you guys do is. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, we've been doing it since 1824. It's what we enjoy doing. You know, we don't discriminate who we rescue. We are there purely to save life at sea. Well, long may you continue, and thank you very much indeed. Not, I'm sure, just on behalf of the lads no. that you save, but on behalf of, I think, frankly, everyone up and down the country, to say thank you to you guys for really doing a sterling job, and we salute you, sir. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Mark Finesse, the coxswain at Dover RNLI, telling me about the dramatic moment a group of Hasidic teenagers from Stamford Hill were rescued off the coast of Dover. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive, Adam and Kate will be joined by community volunteer Andy Lucas. They'll be discussing women in Judaism. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to Claudia Buki and Meryl Folb about that very subject. And they'll tell us about the newly launched Aitza Network. Now, if you're a fan of the arts, then this next item is definitely for you. The Proms at St Jude's is a music and arts festival based in Hampstead Gardens suburb. Amongst others, it is set to feature some of the finest that northwest London has to offer. Entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been finding out more for us by speaking to one of the trustees, Ron Finlay. She started by asking Ron, what can we expect from this year's event? We have a very exciting lineup, and I, I hope that people are really going to enjoy it. I think we've got a really good nine days of concerts, of literary events, and of heritage walks around the area. That's amazing. Who puts on the uh, the proms? It's entirely voluntary. We have a big team who all do it pro bono because it's for charity. And so what we're very proud of, I suppose, is that we put on this big arts festival every year, which really is a great community event. And we raise money for two charities. One is Toynbee Hall, 
which is in the east end of London and looks after underprivileged people there. And also the North London Hospice, which cares for people with uh, terminal illnesses. And we raised £60,000 for them last year. Wow. I mean, when you think about proms, you tend to think about music. But from what you've said and from all these wonderful brochures, it is a music and literary and a walking festival? Yes. So it started as a music festival only in 1993. But then five years ago, we decided to expand and um, move into the what we call the Lit Fest, where we have a weekend of talks by famous authors. And actually, the walks have been going for quite a long time as well. So you're, you're right, it's three things. Three things. And you can buy a ticket for anyone or all, or how does it work? That's right. So you can buy tickets for individual events. We have a website, promsatstjudes.org.uk, and you can select there from anything that you want to to. And we, what we, I think, really offer well is really high quality performances, music performances at, you know, prices which are much lower than they would be if they were in central London. And it's on your doorstep. So if you live in the Hampstead, Golders Green, Temple Fortune, East Finchley, Muswell Hill area, you know, it's only a few minutes to get there. And of course, it's accessible by tube too. So even if you're from slightly further away, you can get there. So it runs from the 25th of June. That's Saturday, 25th of June until Sunday, 3rd of July. And we have events every day. The Lit Fest, the Literary Festival, is on the first weekend. Give but us a few we... highlights of, uh, of what's going, what we're in store for. Okay, store so, well, so let's look at the Lit Fest first. So I think people will be really interested in two of the speakers in particular. We have David Aronovich, the well-known commentator, has just published a new book called My Family, Communists and Other Animals. That's all about his upbringing in in London and about you know his Jewish roots and how that has influenced his his life and then we also have as another speaker uh, Philip Sands and Philip has uh, an international lawyer human rights lawyer he's written a book based on his investigation of the Nuremberg trials and everything associated with that. Some people may remember that he produced a BBC programme on TV at the end of last year called My Nazi Legacy, and his book is called East West Street. And it's the same basic idea where he is talking to the sons of very senior Nazis who were in very senior positions during the Second World War and looking at how now, 70 years later, and what their experiences are and how they see their, their fathers and the impact on him and his family. So people can go, they can buy books, they can meet. Is there somewhere to eat? You know, we're talking to many Jews out here. Yes, lots of good things. We First of all, you can talk to the authors. You can ask questions in the main uh, at the end of the main session. You can also talk to them afterwards and get buy their books and have them sign them personally for you but we also have very nice cafe facilities as well at the lit fest there's a lit fest cafe where we have really scrubby uh, cakes and sandwiches and teas and also at the concert there is a there's a there's a tent where you can get snacks and drinks as well but a lot of people like to picnic and some people listening might well remember the Kenwood concerts that used to take place at Kenwood House for many years, which had really lovely atmosphere where you could get very high quality concerts and enjoy a picnic at the same time. 
So we try to offer something similar now that Kenwood no longer happens. You can't picnic during the concert because the concert's held inside, but we do broadcast some of the concerts outdoors, actually, and you can certainly picnic if the weather's fine, on the square just outside and it's lovely and leafy and a nice lawn. Sounds adorable. A lovely family event and community event. It is. It is. It's a really nice atmosphere. The main thing, I think, though, Kate, is just to pray for good weather. (laughs) That's one thing we can't (laughs) guarantee. We've spent a lot of time doing that around here. And what's about the the tickets or the... What, yeah. what the price is? Yeah. Uh, so the uh, for the Lit Fest, the tickets are just £9. Walks, which are very interesting around this area, around King's Cross and the city, they're about £10. And then the ticket prices for the concerts vary, but you can get in for as little as 10 or £11, and they go up to £30 and £35 for the top So it's actually concerts. very reasonable. Yeah. And it goes to charity. It must have taken you, I'm looking at this wonderful brochure, the Music and Literary Festival 2006, 16. I'm thinking, my goodness, it's sort of, it's like Glyndebourne meets the Cheltenham Literary Festival and, and yet with an air of, of community. How did you pull it all together? Uh, that's very kind of you to make those comparisons. <laughs> we do have fun and everyone who participates does it, as I say, you know, in their own time at no cost because we just love doing it and we love the feedback that we get from our audience and from our sponsors and advertisers. So we are all working together to make a successful festival and know that in doing so we're raising money for some very good causes. And people come along and I think they feel that it really is that sort of community event. It's not a commercial event. And therefore, a lot of people know everyone there. You know, you get to know people. You can have a glass of wine with them, a glass of Pims, which is increasingly popular, a sandwich, you know, a cup of tea and really have fun. There's also, I should mention, very nice free events too at lunchtime. We have a free concert every lunchtime, except Sundays. And some of the events, especially for children. So this is worth thinking if you've got children or grandchildren that you might like to bring along. We have on the Saturday Limes special events for them. And I would also like to highlight something which is new this year called our Tiddly Prom, which is for babes in arms up to the age of four years old. And we've got a little three quarters of an hour music festival or music event for them. And that's at 11.30 on Wednesday, the 29th of June. And it's free of charge. And so, you know, makes you into a maths genius or something. (laughs) No, well, it makes you into a music genius, let's hope. Anyway, Are most of your musicians local? Are they students? Are they... um well, we have two two types, really. We have professional musicians in the evenings, and those are the concerts that we charge for. And you can get performers there who are as good as you get in any commercial venue. So Benjamin Grosvenor, for example, this year, who won the BBC Young Artist, Young Musician of the Year Award a few years ago, he's coming to perform, as well as other, you know, very well-known groups, Talis Scholars, for example. But at lunchtimes for our free concerts we do have up-and-coming young artists so these will tend to be recent graduates of um, music colleges or sometimes even students who are still there and they are often local and so we're able to support people from the local community but particularly up-and-coming young musicians and so come along now hear them free of charge and you know you'll be able to say you you saw them before they were famous <laughs> absolutely wonderful it's it seems to bring together all the all the right ideas of community spirit and music and literary 
works um, and good luck with it thank you and good fun for everyone as well so that's that's the main thing i think you know if you want to have a, a really enjoyable evening or come to a you know literary talk for an hour it's promsitsandjews.org.uk get all the details there and you should have a good fun time Ron Finlay talking to Kate Fulton there about the proms at St. Jude's. And if you would like more information, then, as Ron has just said, you can always go to proms at St. Jude's, or one word with no punctuation, .org.uk. Proms at St. Jude's .org.uk. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter. We are at jewishviewsuk. Now, a new network designed to help Jewish women come together and share knowledge and experience launched this week. Community reporter Diana Toman has been finding out more for us by speaking to two of the members of the Eitzer Network, Claudia Buki and Meryl Folb. Diana started by asking Claudia to tell us where the name comes from. It was chosen because the word means in Hebrew and in Yiddish, it means giving advice and counsel. And tell us a little bit about it and why it started. It started as a way of bringing like-minded women across the community who may not have that much involvement in the community and it brings them a step closer within. So it started through that means and it was a group of women who found an identity. And Meryl, was it, I mean, when when Claudia says it's across the community, is this a group of London women? It is a group of London women. So ASA at this stage is is purely London focused or greater London, if you want to put it that way. So the reason why the, the forum came together was to bring professional Jewish women into a common community to help develop leadership capability, to share experiences, provide insight and knowledge in terms of how they've navigated the corporate world or the professional world. So it's, it's very much about enabling women to take on leadership roles um, as they progress in their career. But these people, these women would have careers we open to anyone that can bring some different thoughts, thinking, share, insight. It makes no difference where they come from. Ideally, though, they should come from a professional background where they are working within corporate or public sector, in the medical field, wherever, wherever it is. It would just be great to have Jewish women together. I think we've, we've got a lot of common insights, no matter which part of the, well, which sect of the Jewish community you, you fit into. Right, that's one of or the... Or might be wanting to restart a career. Right, so that's one of the criteria, would you say, for joining or not? Yeah, I, would, I don't know if we've ever defined the criteria, but off the cuff, I would say, yes, it is a, it is a criteria. I mean, I don't necessarily... I come from the corporate world. I'm an, a consultant myself now, so I work in various different environments, but I, I have strong corporate and professional connections. So I consider myself a professional, but I'm not necessarily linked to a specific organisation. I see. How, how often do you, do you envisage meeting the group of you, and how big is the group at the moment? At the moment, there's three of us on the, you know, the co-organising committee, with the help of Leah Warren, who's actually in the office, and we are always looking for new people to join us. And when you say the office, is this something to do with the Board of Deputies? Yes, it's a project. It's a project originally initiated 
buy them? Yes. Am I right in thinking that? Yes. So you're, you're, you're using their offices? Yes. Yeah, so actually we're a breakout group from the Women in Leadership Forum under the Board of Deputies. It seems to me that this is highly commendable as it is. Is it not, in fact, a slightly old-fashioned way of getting women together? Nowadays, when everybody uses social forums, blogging and doing, going on Facebook and everything else that's connected with that, how do you feel this has the advantage over that? Personally, I think it's a refreshing exercise. I think it's a brilliant start with having Julia Hobsbawm speak our first event followed by Luciana Berger for our second so with that with those first two events I think it's a brilliant start to what I think will end up bringing more people and more Jewish women together. How are you physically going to meet? I can understand that you want to meet face to face rather than over the uh, over the online networks but where are you going to organize the events and where are you going to meet? So we've been lucky so far that we've had a fair amount of sponsorships. So we held our first event with Professor Julia Hosborn at Grand Thornton and they gave us their venue to use in the evenings. That was fantastic and it was in the city centre, so accessible for a lot of women who do work in the city. Our next event is taking place at Westminster and from what I understand, Luciana has actually arranged a room at the House of Parliament for us. So... That's great as well. Excellent. Mm. Hardly get better than the House exciting, of Commons, absolutely. could you? Very exciting. And if people want to get in touch with you, and we hope want to join the group, how do they do that? We've got an active Facebook page. Good. We're on LinkedIn as well. Yes. And they can also get hold of Leah through the Women in Leadership Forum, through the, the Board of Deputies. Our Facebook page is AITZA, which is A-I-T-Z-A, the Network for Jewish Professional Women. Claudia Buki and Meryl Forbes speaking to Diana Toman there. And if you would like more information about AITZA, spelt A-I-T-Z-A, then you can always go to Women in Jewish Leadership, all one word, dot org, dot UK. You're listening to The Jewish Views. This is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley, Kate Fulton and me today is community volunteer Andy Lucas. Hello. And the subject for this edition is based on what we've just heard Diana talking about. As the new Network for Jewish Women has launched this week, we thought we'd discuss what it means to be a woman in Judaism today. The question is, how are women treated in our religion and also should we be doing more to ensure that a Jew is a Jew, regardless of whether they're male or female? Uh, big subject, but let's start with you, Andy. Do you feel, as a Jewish woman, that you're treated any differently to a male Jew? It depends on where I am, which synagogue I'm in, etc., etc. In the main, in my synagogue, no. I'm treated exactly the same as I would be anywhere else. I wear a tallit, I wear a kippah, which is my choice, because when I was the warden of my synagogue, I was the first woman warden in my synagogue, and when I was the warden, I just felt that it was correct to, if I was handling the Torah, that it would be correct for me to, ha you know, to wear a tallit and kippah. It's not obligatory, we don't say to anybody, you have to do this. 
But we also have men coming in who don't bother with a tally, which I find absolutely appalling. So does it go both ways? Yes, indeed. We come from very different places, don't we? Absolutely. And that's okay because we can share the difference. I, I truly don't have a problem with women's roles or women doing what what different things from men I, I'm not the same I don't feel the same I have different ways of thinking I have different ways of approaching things and in traditional Judaism halacha does not respect men more than women women have certain roles and men have other roles and there are moves afoot to change if women truly truly want to learn not just because they're or want to do something that men do not just because they're feeling annoyed or yeah that's the way way things need to change in our synagogue we had um women laning the the megillah the megillah tester okay um, and that's that's fine i was it in a group with men as well no because halakhically see the thing is anything can be done provided it's within the halakha now once you change the law and you say oh the law doesn't matter that to me is saying well it's not judaism anymore it's a different thing you can you can take a statue and and remodel it and make it and make it and it's not the same statue that it was. It's not the same thing that it was. So to me, a woman wearing a talit and a yamalki kippah is just not happening in my in my head or in my in my world. I don't have a problem with anybody else doing it any more than I would expect them to have a problem with what I do. Really, it's very interesting because in in my synagogue, which is the Fadi synagogue, it is now all right for women to be executives of the synagogue, but they can't do anything in the synagogue itself in exactly the same way as you do. And I'm with you to a great extent. I do think one should be tolerant of all forms, but I did find it very strange when I went to a wedding, and also to a funeral actually, in which there was a woman, a reform wedding and funeral, to which there was a woman rabbi wearing a toilette I found very strange, personally very strange, I don't mind if she does, if that's the way they do, but I did find it very strange. I've got to be very careful what I say here, because, as you know, I've possibly got my wife and five daughters listening. So <laughs> when it comes to female issues, I have to be tread very carefully. But in all, in all seriousness, I actually do agree more so with you, Kate, because I feel that there are certain roles, and let's take this outside of Judaism initially, there are certain roles that men can do that women can't women can do that men can't i have a problem with people trying to actually make the equality being completely equal rights mirrored rights now i'm not sure about mirrored rights equal rights yeah equality absolutely right men aren't better than women women aren't better than men some are some aren't but there is an equality there what i find interesting is you look at the main differences between men and women, or the main difference between men and women. Really? Yeah. It's our reproductive organs. That's exactly what I was thinking. Women are internal, men are external. Now, you look at the roles that we play in the shul, in our Judaism, mostly the men's roles, the men's traditions are all external. You wear a kippah, it's an external sign that men have to keep being reminded to connect. They wear a talis. Again, an external thing. The women's role, for example, a woman is generally responsible for keeping a kosher home. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Sorry to interrupt you, but in fact, that's what you're saying. The woman's role is to stay in, in the house and do the cooking. And my grandmother, who was a very orthodox Revitan, she believed her religion was in the kitchen. <laughs> 
Well, they, that, that's oh. to, a de- to a degree. Look, they're, and they're, it's on there's... fire. <laughs> <laughs> look, there, there has to be the element of choice for a woman. I mean, you can't say that that is her role. I mean, more when I say keeping a kosher house, I mean, the woman has generally takes on the responsibility of running the family, not just the home. I feel they run the family. A woman's internalization of the home. For example, no one's going to check. No one's going to come round and check that your house is kosher. The woman's keeping a kosher. No, because there is that element of trust. A woman has that internal strength that a man can't. I reckon a man is much more likely to break a kosher house if he was running it than a woman would. But don't you think that men and women are much more on a parallel line because men now run homes they run you know they do all sorts of things that women were originally doing and now men can do it and there's no reason why a man shouldn't do it so therefore why should a woman be relegated if you like to the kitchen and to the house and not be able to study and to do all sorts of things they can do whatever they want. I mean, it's not. I don't see it as a relegation. If I want to arrange dinner and make a really lovely dinner, I actually have a promotion event. I actually enjoy it. It's, yeah. I don't have a problem with it. I agree with you. I've I I also, also studies and also had a career, and I don't have a problem with it. You see, you have to go back to what we're talking about, which is Judaism. It's not men and women in the world. We're talking about very specifically in Judaism, and there are halachic, legal, if you like, Jewish laws that say men do this and women do that, and. I don't find a problem with it. I mean, I went to a wedding once in L.A. and there was a, a female rabbi. Sorry, it wasn't a wedding. It was about mitzvah. It was on a Shabbos. And she was strumming her electric guitar right. and singing with her. And I'm thinking, I wonder if there's any more laws of Shabbos that could be broken. Everybody had to drive to get there. There was all the hanging equipment for, for audio because and every single law of Shabbos was being broken. And what you've got is this kind of flimsy facade because she is called a rabbi it's like Judaism but, didn't matter anymore. The laws didn't matter anymore. Just, I, don't, I don't think it's that. I think it's a matter of where you live in respect of how you get to synagogue. If you live too far out and you want to go to synagogue on a Shabbat, if you have to drive, you have to drive. That's and that choice. was always, but that was always something that was allowed because at Maccabi, we had a talk by one of the Dianim who gave us a whole history and and told us all about he had a congregant who had to work he financially had to work in the afternoon but he would go to shul every morning on a shabbat morning and he would then go into work he'd walk to work everything would be folded he trusted people to pay him on the sunday but he would go in and he would have to work now it's compromise. You have to compromise. But I think, as Kate said, it is choice as well. When women are being forced to stay in the kitchen, uh, then I have a problem. Yeah, yeah. They, they absolutely should have the choice. And I think no one can really judge any generalised situation because everyone's different. Yeah. However, there are certain... There's a framework within that those choices have to be made. And that framework's very clear in the Torah. I mean, originally, when... Adam and Eve in Ganedan, Eve was called Etzer Konegdo, which is a helper to him, or more accurately, a helper against him. Now, to me, that's beautiful because the woman is there because the man needs someone to tell him sometimes, you're wrong. This is very interesting what you're saying because I can remember a time a few, a year or so ago on this very program, we had 
the wife of an Orthodox rabbi, an Orthodox, you remember, Kate? I do. An Orthodox Jewish woman who believed that Jewish women should be allowed to be called up to the Sefer Torah and allowed to do things that women are not allowed to do currently in Orthodox synagogues. But they are allowed to do it in women's tefillah groups. Correct. So sure. you know because it, it's because it's there's, there's because there's models. only women and I find it no quite, this woman though believes it could be done in front of men as well well I I quite agree with her and why not because a man can't control himself because that's what it boils down to and it's the same with with the Muslims you know they they have to have the women covered because the men can't control themselves well I'm sorry if they can't listen to somebody's voice if they've got a beautiful voice well that I, is think, not I think our that's, problem. there are a lot of other reasons and I think. You know, again, there are laws, and until we really study the laws, to some extent, it's hard to sort of make a comment on, on certainly not on other religions, but in our own. I think we've got to be very careful and explain that, that really the laws are there for many, many different reasons, not just... Can I just ask you how many cases, how many rapists and paedophiles do you come across that are female? You don't come across some female right. ones, so, but you come across the male ones. Absolutely. Why? Because, because there is an element of the essence of a male that, yes, he doesn't have the same control that a woman does over his animal instincts. That's what really irks me about this discussion is that this equality is treating, as you said, parallel men and women together. Men and women are different. Right? And there's nothing wrong with that. We should celebrate those differences. We should not be diminishing those differences. We should take our own place in the, in the religion, or rather find our own place that you're comfortable with, within your own sex. There's nothing about a woman's role that I feel the need to do because it's not for me. Just to argue against myself for a minute, just because, because I'm being Dafka now, because I can, because I'm a woman. Um, there are times when I do feel that in shul, it is a little bit of a spectator sport, just very, very occasionally. And, and I feel that that most. And, and hopefully, you know, please God, it won't be for a long time if I ever had to say Kaddish. No. I have both my parents and I haven't had to. Now, I would really struggle, first of all, because it's a massive synagogue. Secondly, because... I want someone to say amen to my bracha and I'm up there. And I can imagine that would be... I mean, I know that now, you know, there are moves afoot to sort of to make sure that women are encircled, embraced, sort of physically, not with arms around, but just standing around them. Yeah. There are very, very occasional times, and I can't pretend, but but on the whole, I'm very much more of Adam that we have with Adam in that we have roles. And I, I think it's all apples and pears. I, I didn't feel the need to compare them. So for me, it would be wearing a talit or, or, or a kippah would be like wearing... My husband coming down saying, you know, I like that dress in your wardrobe. And I really fancy, you know, I've always... Well, but there, but there are men that do that, so, you know. But, so are. I wouldn't... Co well, I would comment because I, I wouldn't... But he's much bigger than me and it would look strange. But, <laughs> it, it, but isn't it Chief Rabbi... He's got a good figure, though. He'd look good. Hasn't Chief Rabbi been saying that more should be done for women in the synagogue, hasn't he? Those that want to, as long as it comes from a genuine place, not a, just a place of, look, they've got it, I want to, I, I'm going... No, 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 that's right. It, they have People have to want to do these yes. things. You know, I didn't wear a tallit and kippah until I felt ready. But why? Say, why did you feel... When you say you felt ready, what was it that made you want to do that? The fact that I, w I went through the wardenship, and I didn't do it until my senior year. And as a senior warden... I just felt that 
If I was going out to handle the Torah and I was taking the scroll out of the ark and giving it to other people and walking around with it, that I should be appropriately attired, if you like. But appropriate attire for a woman is completely different to appropriate well, attire. That's there, like saying, as a man, I feel that I should be in short carrying the Torah, wearing a wig and, and long sleeves. No, but there is nothing in Halakha that says that a woman cannot wear a tali and kippah. There is absolutely nothing in the halakha. But there is something very specifically that. not to wear men's clothes. Yeah, but that's not not wearing a man's clothes. You 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 can customize them so that you make it more feminine. But these My traditions is much more feminine than you know. Sort of, I don't wear a big black thing apart from a, a Yom Kippur when I'm freezing cold. But otherwise, I just wear mm. a very pretty tali and kippah, and you know it's. But it the halakha right. and the traditions were created designed to whoever you want to say specifically for the individuals so the talus was designed because that is an element of the male character of masculinity that they need the reminder that's why men wear it but if maybe women, women if maybe women, women need that reminder as well I, I, I put my trust in in the almighty to be honest and it doesn't say anywhere about women needing that physical reminder and that actually elevates women way above men because men constantly need remember remember be a good Jew be a good person be you know think about God and think about doing the right thing women generally like I said you don't get women rapists and pedophiles really you get, might get some but very rarely but that's exactly the point they don't need that and to actually be taking on those traditions to me is it doesn't feel now correct me if I'm wrong but it doesn't feel as if women are doing it because that's the right thing and that's getting us closer to God it feels to me they're doing it because well if men can do it I can do it and yeah, that doesn't yeah. really feel right to me but as a traditional orthodox Jew I shouldn't be saying this but why should a woman if she wishes not wear a toilet in, in an orthodox synagogue if a woman came upstairs in a Sephardi orthodox synagogue I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying this if a woman comes upstairs wearing a toilet nobody will stop her and why I shouldn't have to she? Say, I have to say that I wouldn't go into an Orthodox synagogue and wear my tallit. You wouldn't? I, no, I wouldn't do that. Out, out of respect. respect. Yes. Mm. Purely out of respect. Well, um, we, all, we all do that. That's that's nice. And I wouldn't go into know. I wouldn't go into a you know into a very very Orthodox. If I had if I had sleeves here, I would make sure just just because yes, I don't want to offend anyone, I would make right. sure my you sleeves are right down and. Completely, but, that was... But having said that, you know, I went to a, a friend's... Oh, I can't remember, it was her birthday on a Shabbat. And it happened to be a yard site, and I wanted to say Kaddish, which I, I do on a fairly, you know, on a regular but basis. you're allowed in a North Rock, and they've got yeah. to say Kaddish. Mm. Yeah. Well... I got looked at. I was sort of at the front of in the front row, and I got looked at as though, "What are you doing?" You know, it was really odd. Mm. It was really odd. I felt very uncomfortable. Well, that's good that things have changed. Yeah, I think it's good that there there are things being developed within the religion where women are getting a bit more choice. But I think that choice again has to be within a framework that's quite clear. Well, there we are. That's a good that's a good place to wish to end this discussion. I'm afraid our time is up. There are things happening which are good, let's put it that way, and at least we're all tolerant of each other. My thanks to our guest community volunteer, Andy Lucas. And please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. 
And it's time now for our Rabbinic Thought for the Week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinloss United Synagogue. On Shavuot, we read the Book of Ruth, a story dressed in rich metaphor. Our book is set in the immediate aftermath of a devastating famine, the GFC of its era. A man called Elimelech, whose name means My God is King, has left his home in Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. In exile, his sons die. Their names are recorded in the book of Chronicles as Yoash and Seraph, but here in the book of Ruth, they're called Machlon and Chilion, names implying sickness and destruction, not the kind of names we'd choose for our children. As you know, Ruth follows Naomi back to Israel. Wherever you go, I will go. Like Abraham and Sarah, I will follow God's path. And where you lodge, I will lodge. I shall keep a Jewish home. Your people shall be my people. I shall be a part of the Jewish community. And your God, my God, I shall observe the Jewish faith. Where you die, will I die, and there will I be buried. My commitment is lifelong, and my soul is God's for all eternity. At the very end of the book, Ruth and Boaz have a son, whom they call Oved. The name implies being a dutiful servant and a follower. He was called Oved because Boaz was a dutiful servant of God, looking to do the right thing by Jewish law, for his family and also for his employees. And he was called Oved because Ruth embraced the way of God, followed Naomi, and honoured her extended family ties. Oved is the grandfather of King David, born in Bethlehem. Though set far back in our nation's history, the story has relevance today. Elimelech was no desperate economic refugee. Rather, he was a man of substance. In fact, the Midrashim are critical of his opportunistic lack of faith, claiming he abandoned Israel to look after his immediate family, rather than contributing their collective energy and resources to the cause of welfare at home. It's one of the explanations of the pejorative nicknames of his children. It's also why Naomi is initially given the cold shoulder on her return and says her name is Mara, or Bitter. Even before we get to the inner tale of Ruth, important lessons are being taught. The truth dressed in metaphor. When we abandon Bethlehem, the house of bread, anticipating prosperity elsewhere, we alienate our children from their heritage and destine them to spiritual sickness and destruction. Ruth and Naomi show that we can pick up and return. Boaz, who stayed firm, teaches that we should welcome people back and welcome them in. It is the message of Shavuot, to embrace God and embrace his way. To follow his word requires that we honor our families and all humanity. The story teaches that though we may start off in a house of bread, our children may go on to reign in Jerusalem. And the truth without the metaphorical dressing? If we look to the Torah and follow its ways, however humble our original home, we may dwell in the palace of God. Thank you to Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinloss United Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Mark Finesse, Ron Finlay, Claudia Buchi and Meryl Folb, Andy Lucas, who is on the schmooze, and of course, you at home for listening. Thanks also to the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.